right, Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Uh, before we get to the show, uh, this week at Bon Appetit, we announced our 50 nominees for the best new restaurants in America. You can check them out at bonappetit.com, see if one of your favorite places made the list. And then the winners of the Hot 10 are announced on bonappetit.com on August 14th and will be celebrated in our September issue, which hit stands about that time. Also, if you haven't had a chance, please check out our YouTube channel where we have all sorts of amazing stuff going on. Uh, yesterday, Claire Saffitz, the podcast's own. Claire Saffitz, uh, her video on how to make homemade Oreos went up, and I think it did like 1.4 million views in the first day. Also, Alex Delaney, who's been on the cast a lot, uh, he went to Buffalo and ate like 86 buffalo wings across 12 different places. Find the best buffalo wing in all of Buffalo. Uh, so check that out on our YouTube channel. And now, for this week's show, Deputy Editor Joy Kramer sat down with Heather Sperling and Emily Pfeiffer, the women who run Botanica, a very cool veg forward all day cafe in Los Angeles. You could pretty much say it's the definition of healthy-ish. So Julia talks to Heather and Emily about their transition from food media where they had worked uh, to actually starting and maintaining a successful restaurant without any professional culinary experience and what in a male dominated industry makes the mostly women-run Botanica different. And after that, I talk with food director Carla Lolly Music to run through the do's and don'ts of the farmer's market. And I'll just say this, if you're not at the farmer's market this time of year, you are doing something wrong. And when you are there, there is proper etiquette to uphold, and we'll give you some advice. Uh, and tied to this, I want to tell you about a super cool project that Healthy-ish has been working on. It's called the Farmer's Market Challenge. For the month of August, we will be celebrating peak season produce by providing 10 recipes for readers to cook, each built around one all-star fruit or vegetable. Think tomatoes, watermelon, summer squash, plums, corn, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and the challenge is to cook through each of them. You can check it out and find more details on bonappetit.com slash farmer's market challenge. Finally, something real quick before we get to the show. For those of you who missed it the first time around, I want to tout a cool offer for all of our podcast listeners out there. We are offering a one-year subscription to both the print and digital magazines of Bon Appetit for only $15. Plus, if you sign up, you get a Don't Worry, Eat Happy tote bag and five downloadable PDFs featuring recipes for desserts, cocktails, and more. All you have to do is go to bonappetit.com slash foodcast to subscribe. All right, now let's do this. Here is Julia with Heather and Emily. So... Uh, I want to set the scene. The year is 2011. The three of us are all living in Chicago. Emily, you were the editor for Daily Candy. Heather, you were the editor for Tasting Table Chicago. And I was working at Time Out Chicago at the time as a restaurant critic. Did you guys know then that you wanted to open a restaurant? No. No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I think I actually had said to a dear, dear old friend of mine when she suggested that at some point in life she, she saw me as destined to, opening, to open a restaurant, I think I had said, absolutely not. I would never do that. And after I staged in a restaurant in London and had like the most incredible experience ever, I left knowing that I wanted to do something in food. And I was like, but I can't 
support be in the kitchen. I can't open her. I can't do this. Right. I think that's a thing like most food writers. What's a phrase like for a gym teacher? Like you teach because you can't like play the sport or something like you like write about food like I write about food because like I, I can't work in a kitchen it takes me like two hours to peel one bag of fava beans but it's not even about a lack of technical skill because that can mm-hmm. all be taught it's also about I think at that time for Emily and I we were so passionate about documenting multiple facets of the food world we were so energized and so satisfied by the way we were engaging with food in a very cerebral way and a very you know, observatory way, and but we still felt like we were in it, and and that was enough. And we were writing about producers and restaurants and winemakers, and we were able to sort of cover everything and get this really, really amazing field education in so many different elements of food. And I think it took enough years for both of us to start to feel like we had done enough observing and start to get the itch to want to build something to be able to completely go back on all of our very emphatic previous statements and decide actually no wait we we do want to do this and we can and right we're gonna and also coming to the realization that okay well our kitchen doesn't have to function the way that pretty much every kitchen both of us have experienced in the past has functioned exactly. it can be completely different and we get to decide what the ethos is, what the vibe is, how we treat people. And I think that that took a few years for us to kind of understand and learn. And what do you mean when you say that? Like, what were the core things that you were like, all right, if we're going to have a restaurant, it's going to be based on these sort of principles, not these aspects of the restaurant industry that we find so like alienating or unacceptable or whatever it might be? Yeah, we knew that. If we were going to have a restaurant, it was going to be a place that was primarily focused on nourishment, both on the plate, and that very much informs the particular type of food that we make, but also in the way it functioned as a business, and that it was going to be a place whose foundational values were to be healthful and respectful and happy. And you know, to say that wellness has not historically been a part of the restaurant world is really an understatement and we we knew that if, if and it took a while for us to figure out that this was even possible for whatever reason but once the light bulb went off in our head we realized we we think that we can build a place that incorporates healthfulness and happiness and balance in every aspect of the business and that's, you know, after years and years and years of observing the restaurant world, we can say that's not the norm. But um, once we started thinking about that, we actually became pretty insanely motivated Mm -hmm. to make it happen and went from saying we would never do this to we are going to do this. There's no other option. There's no other option. And it's we're going to make it happen and we're going to make it great. I think also just looking back to that period of time in Chicago, it was almost like an exceptionally un- healthy time in restaurants it was like peak pork belly bone marrow like you couldn't go out to eat without feeling terrible about yourself the next day at least that's how it felt yeah Yeah. and it also was a very very I mean the the restaurant industry continues to be incredibly male dominated to this day Um, there are some incredible women working in Chicago to be sure and every major city who we look to as amazing sources of inspiration Um, but you know, it also, Chicago is a very, lot, there, 
lots and lots of men running kitchens and running restaurants. And even some of the women-run restaurants in Chicago have a bit of a masculine vibe. And Botanico is in many ways a reaction to that, not just in Chicago, but all over the world. But it was, you know, the food that we were eating in 2011 was pretty heavy. The service was so warm and professional and thoughtful, but also sort of masculine. The spaces were masculine. We were really in this context of, you know, you sit down and you feast and then you sort of stumble out feeling, you know, a little dazed and out of it and you don't feel that great the next day. And that's what it is to go to a restaurant. So did you feel like you could open a place like Botanica in Chicago or did you feel like you had to get out and do it in another city? We felt like we had to get out. Heather had actually left Chicago about a year before and moved to New York. Um, I stayed and then um, went to London to cook for a few months and came back. I it, I think our time in Chicago was up and it was clear to both of us. Um, we talked so much about where we thought the best place was to open Botanica and Chicago was crossed off the list pretty quickly. and. Um, not only because I was really ready to leave myself, but because New York felt like the most obvious place for us to open, actually. Mm -hmm. um, like in our very, in the very first conversations we started to have, it was where our network was. Um, we knew there were fantastic producers here. It just felt like it was where everything in the food world was happening. And then. And then <laughs> somehow <laughs> California entered the conversation. Um, and both of us were so taken by LA, I think, and just caught off guard by how taken we were by the produce, the possibility, the space the people who were like incredibly supportive and the creative community that was starting to build there. So it became like immediate to us, I would say after a couple visits and we ended up at a farmer's market in like the middle of February, Heather had left New York to come and I had left Chicago. There were snowstorms on, you know, in both places. And then we end up in February at a farmer's market in Silver Lake on a sunny day, like eating berries and we're just like, what are we doing? <laughs> we we have to we have to do this and we have to be here. There's a year-round growing season. There's so much space physically. There's space, but also we had met a lot of people who were like come, come. You know, it felt like a Yeah, like please, we want yeah. to eat this this food that you're talking about. Yeah. We want to eat. And you would think that if it existed anywhere, it would be here, but it doesn't. And mm -hmm. as we were pounding the pavement, we found too that yeah, this we actually weren't seeing what we thought should exist, and what seemed like if, it were, if there were going to be any place in the country where you could find an abundance of this food in restaurants, you would, and yet we weren't. So we went. So can you paint a little bit of a picture for people who haven't been to Botanica of what your restaurant is like? Because I think it's sort of emblematic of a very new type of restaurant. You are open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You serve this like beautiful vegetable-focused plant-based food, meat as well, but like just sort of a sense of overflowing with vegetables. You have a coffee bar, you have a market, you have a back patio, you have this insane natural wine program. How did this vision come together and how is it sustainable to run all of these different aspects of the business? 
Well, that's a big question. Emily and I have been spending a lot of money on uh, massages and acupuncture and weird LA muscle testing. But no, to to answer your question and to try to paint a picture, um, the first thing that we hope that people feel the moment they walk in the door is a sense of peace and calm um, and a feeling that they are about to be really well cared for. And that's something that we have tried to build into every inch of the space. It was so, so fundamental in the way we thought about the design of the space. So it's really, it's airy, it's light, it's open, it's welcoming. We got renovated a liquor store from the 1940s that was a little liquor cave. And um, blew out the ceiling, redid the skylights, blew out the back wall. We filled it with plants with tons of really beautiful visual um, textures so that when you walk in, hopefully you feel like, wow, this this place feels like it's been here forever. It's so lovely. I can't wait to spend the day here. And that, I, that sense of, you know, wanting to create a place that delights people and also really cares for them and really satisfies them and really nourishes them is something that is sort of the common threat through everything that we do. So what that means with the food is that um, it's food that we think is very ambitious and exciting and creative, um, but also is is very has a bottom line of wholesomeness and healthfulness. And so we like to make food that's very, very colorful, that's really abundant, that, as you said, stars vegetables. And we also use some really beautiful wild Pacific seafood and and really, really well and thoughtfully sourced meat. Um, but for us, it's primarily about doing really exciting, interesting things with the crazy, gorgeous produce that, that we're getting. Um, and so we want every meal to feel like a feast. Um, we want you to, you know, eat with your eyes before it even hits your mouth. We use all local produce, but a very global pantry. You want to take it from there, Em? Yeah. I mean, I think that you summed it up beautifully. Um, I, I did want to add that something that was really important to us in terms of the space was that, um, and something that we always found like immense pleasure in at restaurants that we loved most was when you walk into a restaurant and you just are like, oh, I want to live here. And we wanted our restaurant to feel like walking into somebody's extremely well-designed home, not completely literally, but just in the sense of comfort and care and thoughtfulness and attention to detail. Um, And I think that it also comes through in terms of the warmth of our staff. Our staff is very much a family, and we have a sea of regulars who come in multiple times a week who have relationships with our staff and it's it's an incredible sense of warmth and community that has been built over time the food on the plate it's everything that heather said and also i think that something that's really been important to us is that you can create ambitious food that is also like really craveable and doesn't alienate your audience mm-hmm. And you can create ambitious, creative, exciting food that people want to eat every single day. It doesn't have to be over the top and weird in order to make an impression on somebody. It just needs to be delicious and interesting and exciting enough to make somebody come back. Yeah. I mean, this food very, very much came out of the way Emily and I were cooking together at home. I was eating at restaurants eight times a week. and. When when I wasn't eating there, I wanted to be eating beautiful, interesting food, but food that also sort of made up for the lack of 
nutrients and the and the sort of lack of attention of a very particular food group. Heather and I have eaten a lot of salads together. A lot of salads, (laughs) but it's not just salad food. No, but in terms of the in terms of the coffee program, the tea program, the wine program, you know, we we always like to say to our staff that every inch of this space and every second of someone's experience in here is an opportunity for us to convey our values. And so that means that that's that that to me is sort of a fundamental element of our hospitality. And so that means that of course the coffee program is going to be incredibly thoughtful and exciting as as and as careful as any other element. Of course the tea program is going to be sourced from people who we respect and think are amazing and are all going to be brewed to a specific time and the service vessels are going to be beautiful and it's like if I think when you have such a such a multi-pronged complex organism mm-hmm. as a restaurant and especially as one that's open all day serving multiple meals with all of these other programs wine cocktails etc cetera, etc cetera, you can't let any of it slip otherwise everything else will slip, stop slipping. You have to make sure that each of these programs are being executed at the top of their game because otherwise your staff is not going to take it seriously. The people who come in are not going to take it seriously. It's like it's it's really amazing and it's been such a so satisfying also to be able to funny enough like as I was saying earlier when we were writing about food, we loved being involved in all these facets of the food world. So we ended up building a place somewhat strategically that would still enable us to be in all of these facets. And I think it makes it a stronger experience too. I mean, like I think every restaurant that cares about its food should have a great tea program. It's not that hard. There are a lot of tea purveyors in this country who will literally just come and do it for you if you don't know how to do it yourself. Um, And we're seeing more and more of that in the restaurant world, which is so exciting. So I want to go back to something that you said right at the beginning about massages and and muscle work. And you guys spend a lot of time caring for your staff, caring for your customers. I get the feeling that you are pretty much always there, hands-on. So how do you take those moments to make sure that you yourselves are still standing and okay? I mean, for the first six months we didn't it was yeah, I, I you can't was, you, and that's okay yeah, yeah and and we knew that was coming like that is a part of this and it's not just six months it's pretty much forever but because it was like eight eight months yeah it was it was an intense <laughs> first three quarters of a year mm-hmm. let's just say <laughs> um where we like couldn't stand up at the end of a night and it's it's hard to sacrifice sleep it's hard to function um and then, you know, be exhausted at the end of the day and just just have to wake up and be there the next day. And be and be happy on. and optimistic and solving yeah. every problem for your forty five employees yeah. and the three hundred people walking yeah. through the door every day. Yeah. It's it 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 takes a lot of energy. Um but it creates a lot of energy yeah, too. Totally. Absolutely. I will say that a constant conversation that Heather and I have and now that like we have with a lot of our staff is just we're always checking in to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. So whether it's saying, are you going to get a massage on Monday? Or don't take a red-eye flight. That's insane. Mm-hmm. You're going to be exhausted for the week. Or bringing essential oils and like anointing your <laughs> chef de cuisine before service one night to uh-huh. calm her down. You know, it's it's little things that we're actually all doing to just keep front and center the fact that 
yes, this is an insane business. Yes, there's so much going on. Yes, there are always going to be problems, but there are tiny little achievements every day and little little steps that we can take. And as the heads and faces of this business that is purporting to be all about bringing healthfulness and peace and happiness into an industry where those aren't the you know common things, we have to be on top of that. So admittedly, by the end of last year, about eight months in, we had started to become pretty run down and we realized that we were both not being the best versions of ourselves, Mm -hmm. which everyone has moments like that. But when it's happening big picture and you are running a company with 45 employees and a million dollars of investor money and you you know, and a lot, a lot riding on you, you actually, we, we, we had to kick into overdrive in terms of taking care of ourselves. So mm-hmm. I think January 1 was a big turning point for us. And this calendar year, we've, we've actually had to get pretty aggressive about wellness. And, the, and it takes time. It feels like a job. I was just yes. going to say, I, I really feel like we have dived into taking care of ourselves in the same way that we kind of went straight into opening the restaurant it it requires an immense amount of energy and effort mm-hmm. and maintenance and like sense of routine and you also it's just we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are important and we need to take time for ourselves and that this is what it takes to be the bosses that mm-hmm. we want to be and this is what it takes to prove one of the things we set out to prove which is that you can do this you can be two women who raise the money, open your own restaurant in this world, and still be reasonably happy, healthy, and sane. <laughs> this industry is always it is one in which you have to go hard. You always have mm-hmm. to go hard, hard. It's always you have to push and push and push. And what we're trying to figure out how to do is go hard with taking care of ourselves. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. a really different perspective, but it's still it's the same, just a little different. And go really hard, create something that has an amazing impact that is really successful, not just financially, but also that, while also working really, really hard on building a great life day to day and big picture and a great home for for our staff. Right. And I think that that's obviously something people have been talking about a lot lately about kitchen culture and the need to change kitchen culture. And you guys clearly came in with an understanding of that long before this long belated conversation surrounding Me Too and surrounding all of the sort of abuses that have taken place in restaurant kitchens and in front of house. And how do you run a kitchen that you can feel good about and that you know is a supportive place for your employees? So it's taken a while to get there. But we we now have an all-women-run kitchen. We're not saying women are the answer, but <coughs> women are the answer. <laughs> no. They're part, they need to be part of the answer. Um, or if not women, specifically just um, embracing things that are more traditionally feminine values. And I just want to clarify, we see this happening all over the world, and it is incredible and so exciting and so overdue. And I feel like in just in the last five years, we have – the speed with which we've been moving away from the French brigade system as the dominant culture that has continued to trickle down is like exponentially faster, which is amazing. But for us, so we, we have an all women kitchen. We have a, um, 
chef, amazing chef de cuisine and executive sous chef who are both women. We have a two women pastry team. We've started to get more and more women on our line. And we of course also have amazing, wonderful men in the kitchen too. Um, and also in front of house and everyone who, who works at Botanica and who lasts at Botanica shares the desire to be working in a place that feels safe and kind and happy and friendly. And that's not to say that things don't get high octane at times. Services can get intense, things can go a little awry, but there's we don't yell. We say hi and how are you? And, and how so can nice I help to see you? you to everyone. We say how right. can I help you? What do you need? We as the as the top two in this business, we work really hard to stay really calm, really solutions oriented, and really peaceful at all times. And when we leave the restaurant and we go home to our partners, we freak the fuck out sometimes. <laughs> I'm familiar with that. And feel forward. really yeah. bad, like all of our Zen master, <laughs> you know, chips have been played at the botanical <laughs> table. But while we're there, you know, it's it's such a top down thing. Yeah. And it's and it can be as little as just being really genuinely happy to see every single mm-hmm. one of your staff members every day mm-hmm. and just say and just thanking them for their work and wishing them a great rest of the day mm-hmm. when they leave and these little bits of kindness just set the tone that this is a place where we care about each other right and you know when we have time like heather and i both ask questions about people's lives and their families and we know about what happens when they leave work. And that to us is also really important to just be, to really know people beyond the job they're doing for us. I think that's hugely important, the like human component Mm -hmm. of who are you when you're not here? What else do you do? Are you an artist? Are you an actor? Do you have, you know, five kids at home? What are their names? And the more you learn about that, that sense of connection strengthens and the sense of loyalty also just becomes all that much stronger. And in the kitchen, I mean, if someone, if, if someone, you know, roasts the carrots in a way that makes no sense to us, (laughs) we might grumble to each other about it, but then go and talk to that person and say, Hey, let's talk through this. Let's talk through this technique. Let's talk about the way we think it should be done. Let's talk about, you know, what happens when they're this way, what happens when they're that way, and why even the, the, why it matters so much in this dish. So much of our food is very, very simple, and so it's really very technically driven. And so if something's getting a little bit of steamed, a little bit of steam instead of, like, nice hard sear, it's going to compromise the quality of the execution of that dish. So it's also about having really calm, productive, learning-oriented conversations with Mm -hmm. people at all times. And what is it specifically that you can see that's different by having more women in your kitchen? Like, how does that manifest itself on a day-to-day? I think the the friendliness, um, the The communication. The communication. It's totally open and calm, and whenever there's a problem, it's just hey, this is going on, how can we all solve it? Not, hey, this is going on, let's grumble about it. Um, less ego, I'll, interestingly. So, so much, much less ego. Less ego, um, very solutions-oriented, mm-hmm. less than uh, problems-oriented. Um, a lot of laughter <laughs> and a lot of openness in terms of, you know, 
I'm feeling like shit, I have a migraine instead of just like hiding it and grumbling all day. It's just being open and then, okay, well, I'm so sorry, lie down in the office. How can we help you? Yeah, we'll get you Motrin and we'll also Google, you know, how to cure a migraine with vegetables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we'll bring you essential oils. And so there's a lot of shared interests that lead to a really, really nice rapport, um, even sort of as beyond just the shared interests in what we're doing with the restaurant. Um, Logistics-wise, also, I would say um, women do have an ability to see, to, to look around and see everything and systematically work on multiple things at one time rather than just kind of pigeonholing into one issue. Yeah. So Botanica now has been open for a little over a year. Yeah, 13 months. What do you know now from a year of running a restaurant that you wish you had known when you first opened? Insoles are really important. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of shoes do you wear? I mean, I'm the worst. I wear, like, I have like a hundred pair of Vans now. And Vans are actually the worst. (laughs) The worst. But I have great little cushiony insoles. Uh Um, I I mean, I have so many sneakers. My sneaker collection, I never thought that I'd be the kind of person who wore sneakers on the daily. I think Heather and I both have so many, so many sneakers between the two of us now. But having insoles and like taking care of your feet is majorly important. We don't always do it, but so true. Yeah, great advice. Um, Man, I don't know. That's a hard question. I think. um, I think we. I think it's going to take another year for us to be able to really distill that because we are still so in it. Um, One of the big things that we're we're learning right now, and that's really going to inform our next steps with Botanica, is that um, you can't work on the business while you're working in the business. Mm-hmm. And we, what we're what we're trying to figure out right now, and I think this will be a really really big learning period. So you can ask us this question again a year from now, and hopefully we'll know everything and all the answers. But uh, is that at some point you have to figure out how to stop touching every little thing and feeling like the only way for this for this organism to thrive is if you are controlling everything and really really start to pass things off and and trust people and trust people which i think we have so much trust in our staff and so much love and respect for them they're freaking incredible but we also this is still our baby that yeah. we i mean we were so insanely involved in every granular detail of this project <laughs> Cool, cool. Well, Emily, Heather, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks Julia, for having thank us, you. And everyone should go to Botanica next yes. time you're in L.A. <laughs> Please come, come see us. We can't us. wait to feed you. Carla, I'm going to be honest with you. When I go to the farmer's market, I get like a severe case of shopper's anxiety. Especially this time of year. There's there's too much, too much choice. It's very overwhelming. And I honestly don't know what to do about it and i i know it's beautiful there and i know i'm supposed to appreciate it and we have this big article in the august issue about shopping the market and i just go and i'm like ah. you're going to union square green market i'm assuming oftentimes which is the big like central it's the it's the it's it's, the it's big a kahuna. major hub i would yeah. say in new york city union square and grand army plaza have a lot of real estate, a lot of vendors, a lot of people go there, very close to a lot of trains. 
uh, it can be really overwhelming. And half of the overwhelmingness can just be the other people who also thought it was a good idea to go to the market. <laughs> yeah. That's like half the battle as far as I'm concerned is like my anxiety starts when I'm still in bed on Meaning Saturday what? morning. I wake up this time of year when I know there's like good stuff finally, you know, because like us East Coasters, like there's whole stretches of the year where there's literally nothing coming out of the ground. So these are the months when you're like, it's happening. And week by week, there might be a new thing coming that wasn't there the week before. So my thing is like, I wake up and I'm like, who is already there? Like, oh, who? really? Oh, yeah. It's like, who already beat me? Because my like kids are older now. They get up. They do their own thing in the morning. There's like a, you know, a whole television diet that they, they know that what the portion control is on that. Um, so I don't have to wake up at 530 in the morning anymore with a toddler. But there are lots of other people who do. And they're going to get there first. Mm. That is like the first thing going through my head. Okay, So first thing is get there early. You're a get there early person. I This time of year when it's hot out and it's really crowded, I really do see the benefit of being early because the produce is going to be in the best shape, right? Because it's oh. been. Yeah, so it's, you're saying like if something is prone to wilting or something. Which is, you know. Hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So or like fruit might greens, get a little leaky. Fruit I don't worry. <laughs> gross fruit I don't worry about as much but like the greens the salad yep. stuff the um, herbs definitely things can fade and and this past weekend I got there too late for um I think there were it wasn't currants but there were some berry that someone was like do you have any more you know gooseberries and the guy was like Sorry, I sold the last one, and I was like, I if well, I well, I wouldn't well, have well, even well, known that they were here. They're good. They're sold out. They're in small supply. What time was too late? It was like nine thirty in the morning. Shut up. Yeah, really? and I got the last baguette at She Wolf Bakery, which was like, do you have any baguette left? And he was like, one. And I was like, boom. Well, all right, that's insane. <laughs> For those not living in New York City, I always imagine farmers markets are a little bit more sane. But I do think they get there early. Is, I think it's get, never, you're never going to regret getting there early. I don't think you're going to regret getting there early ever. The 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 trucks are refrigerated. The stuff is just being set up. There's still like moisture clinging on all those bunches of kale. There's an advantage to going late in the day because you know that's when some stuff goes on discounted, two for one, and you know. Question. Yes. Is it when that happens at a farm stand slash farmers market? Is it? No, there's a difference between a farm stand. Farm stand is usually connected to the farm. Farmers mm-hmm. market, uh, and whether it's in New York or Santa Monica, or there's a great one in Portland, Oregon, where we Big were time. at in September oh, yeah. for our Feast Portland Festival. Farmers truck all their produce to the stand, so they often want to unload. They don't want to come back. They don't want to go back in the truck with a bunch of yeah, especially stuff. like hot peaches that yeah. have been like pinched too many times. So do they? Is it explicit that they're on sale, or do you have to kind of haggle with them? Um, usually there's a sign that will come out at a certain point in the day, you know, an hour or an hour and a half before they want to roll that's just like everything half or yeah. two for one or whatever. Can we also, what about, can we talk about damaged goods? Yeah, that's a great, Uglies, I mean, uglies is they, they call them. Seconds or uglies. I think at one of the farm stands in the North Fork, they refer to them at the tomatoes, like the bruised tomatoes as uglies, which cute. I like. It's kind of cute. I like cute. that yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, um, and how does that work? So those are usually... You know, just less perfect looking things that have bruises, dents, nicks, whatever. Um, and they will be heavily discounted too, sometimes half half as much. And if you're going to make a, a big batch of tomato sauce for putting, for jarring or freezing or jam, you still need to, you know, take out the little bruised bits. You well, don't that's the question. So, yeah. So let's say, let's say, let's say you buy a bunch of bruised peaches and you're, you're maybe making a peach pie or some sort of 
peach confiture sort of thing. I don't know. Do you do that? Do you make peach jam? Is that a sure, thing? Sure, of sure. course. Yeah. Should you still cut out the, the bruisey um, parts? Anything that's any kind of like open surface to mm-hmm. the world where mold might have been introduced. So or if, like there's something. Like a, if there's like a festering wound. Yeah. <laughs> there's pus coming out. Yeah. Okay. Peach pus. You guys don't know about peach pus? Um, no. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, you can kind of get cut around that stuff. Okay. It's not like it's going all the way to the core of the fruit, yeah, but yeah. maybe it's not the ones that you're going to use for your um, caprese salad or for your beautiful like peach and, you know, Serrano ham platter or whatever. Mm. Oh, I would like some peach Serrano ham, yeah, a little fresh not? mint maybe, a drizz of olive oil. Totes. When you start thinking of tomato as the fruit and all of the other fruits things that are fruits, tomatoes. then all of the things that can also go with the salty meat, it really opens up. Exactly, yeah. we've I've written about that in the Caprese world, like just sub peaches, figs, all sorts of things for totally. the tomatoes. Melon. And, and, yeah, melon. Obviously, the Italians know melon and prosciutto well. I just but, am like, if I'm at the market early, it's because I want to get berries, which are fragile, leafy greens, herbs, you know, things that the corn that hasn't had like a thousand old ladies like peel back the husk to make sure that every kernel okay, is let's, all right, all right, let's all right, Okay, let's, all right, next question then. All right, let's talk about farmer's market etiquette. What is okay to do to the to the fruit and vegetables what is not okay to do okay first of all before we even touch a piece of fruit let's talk about like how you need to be at the farmer's market oh yes general comportment. general comportment first of all bring small change and bring quarters a lot of stands now have square and they're taking credit cards but like if you're paying in cash do not roll up with like a wad of 20s okay yeah. don't be don't we be have that person in, in the august in our august simple issue uh the title of the piece is the ba guide to shopping sampling and behaving properly at the farmer's market uh, with all sorts of tips and advice. And one of them in big letters is small bills are king. Yeah. Farmers like it, you know, when you have small bills. They can make change. But, yeah, root around in your sock drawer, get your coins out, get your small bills, and bring them to the market. Bringing your own totes seems like an obvious thing. Tote bag, yes. Bring your family or bring your dog. But do not bring your stroller and your dog. Oh, God. You can't be that person. No. And if you need to park your dog. You should not require a a wide berth for your strolling through the market. I understand if you don't want to like tie up the stroller at one end of the market. So tie up your dog and bring your kid. Or leave the I used to I used to park my kids off to the side all the time. I would just be like, here, <laughs> sit yeah. in the stroller, you're out of the way and watch the doggies. Who's and go, like who's going to steal them? No and one. like who's going to steal yeah. them? And mom will be back in a minute and then I would come back and use the stroller as my like shopping cart mm. and then I would leave again. The people who are rolling through with like a German shepherd and a twin stroller and like I can't with you guys. And oh. you also can't stop and start talking to each other when you meet up because now- Oh, when well, no they just stand in the middle of the intersection, basically? <laughs> it's like, keep it moving, folks. Let's go. And listen, you're not anti-kid. You're not anti-pet. No, I have both. Yes, you just know where they belong. Y- yeah, and out it of ain't, the way. And at the farmer's market at 9.30 on a Saturday like, morning. I am already worked up because I'm afraid there might have been like golden raspberries that the guy had a limited supply of and like some other Yahoo who got up at five in the morning already got them. Let's this say is you, terrible. Let's say you're going solo to the market without yeah. your kids, without yeah. your pet, but you ride your bike there. 
is it okay to walk your bike through the market or should you also just like lock the bike up? I think you could walk your bike, but you know. But why not lock it up? You just can't then when you need to stop to get into a stand, then put your bike like, on yeah. like a kind of a long angle blocking yeah. the front I might have done thing. that once. If I'm going to the market and I just have to <laughs> grab one thing, I'll keep my bike. But otherwise, you know what I have in my bike? So I have one of those like kind of dorky like Mary Poppins looking city bikes. But there's a cool like a metal wood handled basket that mm. hooks onto the back rack and you just take that you ride with it it hooks on and then when you get off your bike and lock it up you walk through the market with this cool little metal basket thing it's a great solution very cool yeah so um that's sort of just like make yourself stealth move through with purpose this is like we got we got stuff to do yeah. shopping so then when you get to a stand and you want to you know one of the great things about being at the farmer's market is you do have an opportunity to taste before you buy. Like it's like part of the beauty. It's like an taste unspoken... or, or at least look. That's why I've never I've never done that whole what's it called? Fresh direct or whatever, mm-hmm. where they show up with a giant refrigerated truck outside your house mm-hmm. for like fifteen minutes. Like I don't trust ordering stuff that I can't suss out first. Then that's fair enough. So you go to the farmer's market and this is where you're getting the produce that like in in many cases is s- it couldn't even have been delivered on the truck because the heirloom tomatoes and the berries that were picked yesterday and sometimes still have like all the fuzz on, mm. you know, the outside of the bean and stuff like that. Like that's why you're yeah, there. That's why you make the track. Um, and it is completely accepted and acceptable to take a bite or two of things. So one of the things that like, I like... You're saying I can pick up a peach and take a bite and put it back? Well, like usually it. the... Be- <laughs> I did do that as a small child. Like, I would just take bites of all the peaches while my mom was shopping. She tells a funny story. And then, like, she was checking out one day and the, the produce guy was like, and yeah, also yeah. these. <laughs> and all had, like, one bite taken out of them. No, usually apples, peaches, yes. like larger things. But I can things. grab a berry. Of course. Yes. Or a sugar snap pea. Yeah. Or, you know, like... something individual. I'm going to say Carlo told me I could. You totally can. The thing that that you don't want to do, and a lot of places will put out samples. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, sometimes they'll they'll take, if they have a nice, beautiful sort of like a certain variety of tomato or something, they'll slice it up and put it on a plate with little toothpicks. Yeah. And, you know, if there's watermelon and yellow watermelon and other kinds of melon, like they want you to know what it is so that you aren't like, I don't know what that is. And so you don't buy it. Um, one of the things I like to do when I first get to the market, I definitely have my favorite stands because I go to the Fort Greene Farmer's Market every week, but I will walk through from one end to the other and just kind of take a visual inspection. Like what's... Oh, I like that, yeah, that piece of advice happening. that says do a lap first. Yeah, because, you know, some of the farms are way south of us in Jersey and Pennsylvania. Then there's farms that are like way north of us in upstate New York. And you can kind of see how the season like rolls through geographically so this weekend the guys who were south of us had corn but the new york guy like 100 yeah. percent was still in kohlrabi i gotta say I did, i'm kind of impatient i'm the person who starts cooking before he actually reads the recipe through and then yeah. finds out he was supposed to like save half the marinade for the chicken or something and to put on afterwards but i also have been the guy at the farmer's market like oh my god the strawberries i want to buy strawberries and i get them and then i walk you know 40 yards down and there's a guy with like the strawberries that look so much better. Exactly. I'm such an idiot. Why did I rush? And sometimes, you know, you might find that three or four people have this happened to me recently, sugar snap peas. And so I tasted like 
three or four different ones and kind of figured out pretty quickly that those one stands like they their theirs were the best and maybe it was just like where they happen to be in the growing season yep. or where they are geographically or maybe that's that's their thing they make great sugar snap peas what's that recipe the sugar snap peas with oh, that the y- yogurty stuff the, on the buttermilk dressing i yeah. just did that on facebook live e- explain what so can you walk so that's, this recipe? is a great recipe it's so so simple um i just did it on facebook live it's a claire saffitz recipe um you take basically a a mess of sugar snap peas, I think it calls for half a pound. It doesn't really matter. This is super malleable. Um, and you slice them thinly so that you can see inside and see the, like the a, pea like structure. A, like a sort of a chiffonade. Uh, yeah, sort of you like... can go super, like she made them super, super thin, and that's mm. very beautiful. But I think you can kind of do what works for you. Yeah. But the nice thing is that you're, you can see inside of the pea, and also yeah. it's like introducing more surface area. So these were really small sugar snaps I was yeah. doing it with. And then basically you take buttermilk um, and season that with salt and pepper and some grated garlic and lemon zest and lemon juice, and it just makes like a creamy dressing. You have like that on the bottom, mm-hmm. and then and then the the like this confetti of and the peas get peas tossed in olive oil, salt, and pepper, and mm. some more of that lemon zest, and then. They get kind of heaped on top of the buttermilk dressing. And the very creative name of this recipe, as I'm looking at our site, is called Sugar Snap Pea Salad. And there you go. Very easy to find. Um, I love that recipe because you can use any kind of snap pea, right? So yep. when the sugar snaps like go uh, go away and then the the bigger beans and the runner beans kind of come later in the summer, they are all snap peas, and you can do the exact same thing with them. If you say so, okay. I say so. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, sometimes I'll take a bite bite around, and then I'm like, nope, this is like the primo sugar snap peas are with this guy. Sometimes with strawberries, like some people have the little tiny wild ones, and some other people have like are growing a different variety. So you might find that there are three different types of strawberries, and it is worth kind of Getting giving you. everybody a well, little of your love because it, then – you're getting all kinds of strawberries. That's a good point we make in this article. It says it's okay to be superficial, and we have a, a mm-hmm. radish salad. And it's like, yes, buy the four different kinds of radishes, the rainbow, the purple, the white, the green, all that stuff. So when you do make a salad or something, it it looks as beautiful as it tastes. Right, because the rest of the year, the radish that you're going to get is the red radish yeah. that has this top taken off, and it comes in a little plastic bag at the yeah. supermarket. And, and, it is and that's it because is. they can get those year-round. And then there are these moments when you're like, the, all the beans are here, and all of the greens are here. Oh, wait, so let's let's talk corn, because like corn is one of those treasures of summer, and, and for some of us in the colder regions, it's a short window, relatively speaking. So am I allowed to peel back the no, ear? No, Do not. So then how do I know if there's a worm or bugs in there or well, whatever? Well, there might be. Like, this is like life, right? This is food that mm. came out of the ground. There might You might end up with a worm. Just but again, if there's a worm at one end of the the corn cob and when you husk it then like cut that cut little off. piece off so when you i grew up in a household where like moldy cheese was just like cut or, just cut around <laughs> just it. deal with it <laughs> yeah a hashtag just deal with it household what so all right so when you are at that corn table and there's big piles of corn what are you looking for so what you want to look for is before you even get into like trying to figure out what's going on under that husk look at the 
the end where the silks are coming mm. out and look at the end that attached to the plant. And yeah. at both ends, you want to see visually that there's like an indication of freshness. Mm. So the silks that are peeking out of the front of the corn should be like silky and golden and not um, brown and shriveled up and like soggy. And go down to the other end and you're looking at the at the stem end, right? And where it is broken away from the plant, it should look pretty fresh yeah. still. And like still and, yeah. like there's moisture there yep. and that it's not dried up or shriveled up or that they've cut continued to cut it back yeah. like time and time again, like closer and closer to where the corn cob starts. And that's an indication that it was picked like a bunch of days ago or longer and it did start to dry out. So they just like cut oh. off a little bit so that it would look fresher. Because corn really starts to degrade as soon as it's picked and you have to keep it cold so that's another thing like if there's a big pile of corn there kind of going down to maybe the the a couple of layers beneath the top of the pile and like is the corn cold did it come in on a refrigerated truck like is it so when nice you get you get home you should put it in the fridge absolutely and i think that also gets back to your original point of do the lap do the walk around because probably there's several people selling corn come July, August, it's worth it hunting down the best of that of the corn. Which one is the biggest, the firmest, yeah. the freshest? And then another thing that you can look for is without pulling the husk back. Because once you pull the husk back and you're like, eh, wasn't really what I was looking for, and you toss that husked corn back onto the pile, guess who's going to buy that? Literally no one. Yeah. So that is just like you, you know, you basically took a whole corn cob away. A sale. So what you want to do then on the husk is kind of run your finger over the outside of the husk and feel you can feel the corn kernels and you can feel if they're shriveled up or if they're plump and if they're touching each other or they're like shriveled up with gaps in between so you can really feel if the you don't need to look at it yeah. you can feel it do you have a thought on white corn versus yellow versus multicolor no i think that most of the corn being grown in the united states or at least in our growing region now is like they got rid of all the really amazing different varieties because American palates go skew so sweet. Yeah. So we get like one or two types. So the thing to look for is just maybe varieties ask what variety they're growing because there's some that just are not just pure sweet i think yeah. there was a moment when all the corn was just like oh my god it's so sweet but corn used to like taste like taste like corn corn no it tastes like yeah sugared cornbread okay so this is my biggest issue with the market do you go with the plan, like, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to buy some corn, I'm going to buy some radishes, I'm going to buy some melon, and I'm going to buy some chili peppers and some cilantro or whatever? Or do you go, I'm going to go to the market this morning, and I'm just going to see what looks good and get inspired? Uh, I err on the latter. and Dude, that um, scares the hell out of me. No, but this is my whole philosophy. This is where cooking begins. This is, like, where you have the opportunity to shop without a list and without expectations and to, to decide on the recipe after you get what you get. Yeah, but get. then I get home and I, I buy all these like beautiful chili peppers. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do with well, all these? To... Or I get some, like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff when I get home. So, well, you work at a food magazine, so I just go on bonappetit.com and look mm. up chili peppers. We've written quite a few articles for what to do with them. But I think like if you, if you behave like this over time, you kind of learn your own 
habits and your pitfalls. I'm a disaster. Like I shop the market until I literally can't carry the bags anymore. And I can just barely make it the two and a half blocks home. And like my shoulders getting dislocated. And I'm like, have to call my husband and meet me halfway because I like can't carry it anymore. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. There's a watermelon with my name on it. You have to go. And he's like, how do you? And then sometimes I get home and I look at everything and I'm like, oh, I'm yeah, cool. So now I have to cook like I have to get this. Yeah, but going you, how often you don't do you, want to waste it. Yeah, but that's the thing is I feel like sometimes I overshop. So and it's not like to, I can't just throw some stuff in the freezer. I'm like, oh, shit, I got all so that like, melon need, I need to deal with. This is what you need to do. You need to decide on, um, you know, this is sort of like when you go into any other kind of grocery store and you pick up the the basket instead of taking a push yeah. rolly cart. When you pick up the basket, you're like, I'm limiting myself to like what fits in this basket. Mm. So bring the totes with you that's like, this is the right amount of food. Simone and I are going to be home tonight and tomorrow. We have maybe three meals. See, that's another thing. Like, I yeah. think you have to think about your week. Because it's do. like, if you go on a Saturday or Sunday, like, all right, we're cooking tonight, but we're not doing it tomorrow. And then we've got the work thing and then this and that. So like, am I not going to cook at home again till Wednesday? And is the if some of the fruit, certain things are not going to last till Wednesday. Right. You and know? if you're super excited about something, then just sort of like go with that. You can put all your eggs in that basket, yeah. as it were. But kind of give yourself a limited amount of real estate to so you can't overshop yeah. and then i think that's a good piece of advice I, i'm gonna i'm gonna well, dole out you. some advice no oh, no i'm okay. not complimenting you i'm complimenting <laughs> the advice i'm about to give oh if you <laughs> buy a bunch of stuff cook in order of durability or duration that like hey the tomatoes or something like i should cook this tonight because these won't wait till wednesday but some cruciferous vegetable i can put in the fridge and it's totally. gonna be fine come wednesday yes so like sort of plan your meals out that way and which which are most per- perishable cook them first absolutely um and then there are some things that like never even have to go into the refrigerator like the tomatoes like get make a point of just eat you need to just eat them or if we're in like italy nothing goes in the refrigerator exactly do you know they don't they don't have refrigerators in italy <laughs> they don't have ice either <laughs> they, no, they got um, that. no ac either no so just air i think that that's smart and i think that if you get to the end of your day and you realize like i blew it like we're doing beach day tomorrow and tomorrow night we're gonna meeting up with friends and I have these three bunches of leafy greens that just looked incredible I had to get them sometimes I just I don't even have room in the fridge I'm like what have I done so in that case something that has been cooked will keep longer than if it is Mm, raw so so in that this has happened to me a thousand times so I would take like all of the I would strip all the leaves off and I would just huck like a a head of garlic into a pot with a lot of olive oil and braise all of the greens and then they're cooked and they're take up way less space and they're they're not wasted and they're in the fridge and then you can find ways to use them throughout the week. They can be good for lunch. You can mix them into a pasta. Yeah, and they're just not going to go bad. They're not going to wilt. They're not going to be like crowding out your whole veg drawer. So yeah, think about it. Come don't up. refrigerate your tomatoes. No, God, no. People don't know. They well, think that it keeps so. Refrigerate the corn and don't refrigerate the tomatoes. Now you know. Now you know. Carla Music, thanks so much. My pleasure. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.